Well, again, a whole lot there for us to unpack as we continue our time uh, in the book of Hebrews. But I want to begin our time together this morning by playing a little bit of, of a game. Okay, and, and just a warning, this is definitely heretical, but, but I think it's okay, all right? Um, let's just say for, for fun um, that we are in the process of taking applications for a new God. Okay, trying to, trying to figure out who, who to hire, right? Uh, who, who would be perfect for the job? We've got stacks of resumes. Some of you have applied. Fat chance. <laughs> Plenty of interviews. What would you be looking for in a God? And, and I mean, you can go with some of the, the standards, right? And don't be shy. Or if you want to think outside the box, if you're, if you're not a Christian, maybe you've got some fresh ideas. You know, even if you're an atheist, you can play. It's okay. Um, what would you want in a God? Mercy. Security. Patience. Justice. Love. What was that, Martin? Miracles. Sorry? Gives you what you want. Okay, well, you're honest at least. Um, you want Santa. Okay, it's fair. It's fair. I said outside the box, okay? All right, anybody else? Standards. Yeah, sure, right and wrong. So, yeah, moral, yep, yep. Anybody else? Instructions, okay. Yeah, or, yeah, um, yeah, let's... Okay, so, I mean, we could go on and on, right? And we could, we could think through different categories, different ideas. Um, but, you know, on the one hand, an exercise like this is completely ridiculous, right? Because, I mean, if we were in charge of deciding who could be God, then, I mean, we'd be God, right? I mean, at the end of the day. And, and yet, on the other hand, I mean, if we're honest... Isn't this the kind of thing that we typically do anyway? We just do it a little more subtly as we imagine and make up who this God we want to worship might possibly be. I mean, let, me, let me show a classic example of this. And I've shown this before a few years ago, so for some of you it'll be a rerun. And, I mean, it's, it's really irreverent, okay? So, sorry, right, right out of the gate, just want to make it clear. Uh, but before you get too offended by it, you know, and write me terrible emails or anything like that. Um, just keep in mind that this is, this is what we all do, okay? And it's all right to laugh as well. Let's watch. Supper's ready. Come on, y'all. Been slaving over this for hours. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, or TR, as we call them. also want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., who's got my back no matter what. Shake and bake. Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your Baby Jesus powers to heal him and this horrible leg, and it smells terrible, and the dogs are always mm. bothering with it. Mm. 
dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. <sighs> Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled-up fist palm. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. Ricky, finish the grace. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party, too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus, like, with giant eagle's wings yeah. and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with, like, an angel band. And I'm in the front row. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Dear... Eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus. Don't even know a word yet. Just a little infant, so cuddly, mm. but still omnipotent. Mm. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. 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 Let's dig it. Oh, oh. It's just terrible, right? It makes everything about you just kind of it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. And yet, I mean, let's be honest, right? I like to think of Jesus like, whatever, I'll pray, to, I'll pray to my Jesus, you pray to yours, and there can be as many Jesuses as there are people in this room. And we Christians, we, we do this all the time, don't we? I mean, we, we claim to, to believe the words that are, are written here in this book, and yet we still sort of just pick and choose, don't we, often? You know, we emphasize the things that we like and kind of ignore the, the things that we don't like. Or, or maybe... Maybe if you're not a Christian, and I, I mean this with, with all respect, but do you know who it is, which, which God it is that you're rejecting? I mean, are you rejecting the God of the Bible, for example, or are you rejecting just the God that you imagine exists? I mean, an example of that, I have a friend who's an atheist, um, and the God he doesn't believe in has some very specific characteristics, right? He's angry all the time, he's old-fashioned. Really, I don't. I don't believe in that God either. I mean, do you know which God it is that you're rejecting if you're rejecting one? And when we do this, you know, of, of kind of carving out our own God, making God into our own image, figuring out who we want him to be, whether or not he's worth worshiping, when we do that, we tend to go in either one or of two directions. We either make God so much like us that he's just, Tame, right? Eight pounds, six ounces in his golden diapers, right? Uh, just everybody's buddy. Or we go the opposite way. And equally dangerous, we make God so unreachable, so awesome, amazing, and yet he's impersonable, impersonal, un unknowable. But at least he minds his own business. In fact, if you were to look throughout church history, you, you would see that, that most of the, the heresies, right, that sort of crept in along the way went in one of those two directions, either making God too much like us or not enough. When at the end of the day, the God we need is nothing like us and everything like us, all at the same time. 
Okay, now we're, we're early on still in our study of this New Testament book of Hebrews. Okay, and we said that it was most likely originally a, a sermon of some sort preached there so long ago in this first century church, somewhere, somewhere around the, the 60s, early 60s A.D., and it's probably originally preached to a group of, of Jewish Christians, right, who are just trying to figure out what does it mean now to, to believe in Jesus as the, the fulfillment of everything that they've been waiting for. And so there, there they are, right? And Hebrews was written for, for drifters, for people who are, who are like you and me, prone to wander. And imagine what it would have been like for this, this early church, I mean, the New Testament hasn't been written or at least hasn't been collected yet. And so these early Christians, I mean, they've, um, eyewitnesses of the resurrection are still alive. But most Christians at this point are, are second generation, okay? And, and so they've, they've heard that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament promised. They, they've heard that he's the son of God. They've, they've heard that he even rose again from the dead and they believe, and, well, I mean, me too, honestly. I mean, I, I may not understand everything in this book. Frankly, I may not even like everything in this book, but I think there's some really good evidence that this guy, a really long time ago, actually defeated death. That he was dead and he came alive again. I'd kind of like to try that someday. And so I'm with him. And for this first century church, these early Christians, still just trying to figure out who Jesus is, they were at risk of drifting away from him. And it only makes sense, right? I mean, you've got to know who Jesus is to be able to decide whether or not he's worth holding on to. I mean, that makes sense to any of us, doesn't it? And so we'll see three things here about this Jesus. Three things that this, uh, this preacher, this writer, however you want to refer to this person, whoever wrote Hebrews, three things about Jesus. And I don't, I don't want to oversell, okay, a sermon, um, but these three things that come out in this text are some of the most beautiful, mysterious, important things for we as Christians to grab onto and say, yes, this is who our God is. It's all right here. Three things about Jesus. First, that Jesus is nothing like you. Second, that Jesus is everything like you. And third, as a result, Jesus is, ex is exactly who you need. Now, some of you cringed when I said he's nothing like you. Others of you cringed when I said he's everything like you. So just for fun, let me say it again. The God you need is nothing like you and everything like you. Anybody ready to walk out yet? Okay. Well, let's, let's keep going. First, Jesus is nothing like you. Now, we spent the last two weeks talking about this, okay? If you've been with us as we, we studied Hebrews, um, you, you've seen it. If not, let me just summarize quickly so we're all, we're all on the same page. Okay, the author, uh, back in chapter one, he's already referred to Jesus as the embodiment of God's message, the owner of everything, creator of all, the radiance of God's glory, the upholder of the universe, the purification for sinners, seated at the right hand of God. And all that's in the first three verses of Hebrews. So yeah, he's better than the angels. 
He's God himself, the eternal one, the the unchanging king in the line of David, the, the rightful judge. All of this just in the first two weeks. And look at this morning's text, chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. We just heard it read. And in the first few verses, the author says that everything will submit to Jesus. In, in verse 9, he's crowned with glory and honor. In verse 10, he's the founder or the champion of our salvation. In verse 11, he's the holy one, which means set apart, completely different. Okay, so the author has spent the majority of his time in this introduction. I remember this is a, a sermon, okay? We're only in the first couple minutes of his sermon. It's taken us, you know, two weeks to get there, um, But he's still at the very beginning, and he's been doing all of this to convince us that Jesus is nothing like us. He's God with skin on, which for a bunch of of first century Jewish Christians, this is shocking stuff. But if it's true, man, this guy's really worth holding on to. And, And while many of us here I mean, if you've been a church person for any length of time, many of us would probably say, well, yeah, yeah, we know that, Nathan, come on. Really, I mean, you don't even have to believe all this stuff, right, to know that, that Jesus is different. I mean, just look at this list here. No human could possibly measure up. And yet, we still try to make him into our own image, don't we? Ask yourself, is your God, your, your, your Jesus, too much like you? Because you might say amen to all these really great things about who he is, right? And yet at the end of the day, the Jesus you imagine, he's still eight pounds, six ounces, wearing his golden fleece diapers. Well, maybe not that, I guess. And yet, amazingly, if you're honest and you think about who this Jesus is that you've been imagining... Amazingly, he likes all the same things you like. He likes all the same people that you like. He has all the same ideals and passions, and if he had hobbies, they would be your hobbies. He doesn't, he doesn't even really care all that much about your indiscretions, right? Your little tiny things that you do wrong. It's like, oh, it's okay. And bonus, all the people you hate, he hates. You're not judgmental, you're just right. Right? <laughs> Listen, if your God never confronts you, if he never challenges your lifestyle or your attitude, if you never butt heads with God, and he's just some old grandfather who foolishly looks the other way at your lifestyle, then you haven't met Jesus. Because Jesus is nothing like you. One pastor compares it to uh, the movie uh, The Stepford Wives. And and if you're familiar with it, fine. If if not, let me just kind of catch you up a little bit. But essentially, it's about this community called Stepford where all of the husbands have somehow, they don't ever really explain it, have figured out how to turn their wives into robots. Okay? So their wives always say yes. Uh, Their wives live to make everything perfect for their existence. They always look beautiful. You know, and some of you guys are like, interesting right? (laughs) Sounds great, doesn't it? No, not really. Because you can't have a relationship with a robot. 
There's no intimacy there. There's no, there's no love. Nobody would actually want that, and yet it's exactly what we do with God. We make him into our own image and say, this, this is what my God is, because this is what makes me feel safe and good and happy, and he affirms my lifestyle, and he hates all the people I hate, and we all can just live happily ever after. But listen, only a God who can amaze us, surprise us, confront us, only one who is mysterious, only that God could possibly rescue us. Deep down, you want a God who is nothing like you, don't you? And yet, a God who is only nothing like you cannot rescue you. Not really. That's what the author's getting to here. Because Jesus is also everything like you. Now, what would have shocked them in the first century is that Jesus is God. What shocks us now is that Jesus is human. And what ought to shock everyone is that he is somehow mysteriously, beautifully both. But look what it says. Verse 6 and 7. The author begins here by, by quoting Psalm 8. We, we read it at the beginning of the service this morning. It says, a beautiful psalm that extols God, praises God for the, the beauty of his creation of which we as humans are the crown that God made us just a tiny bit lower than the angels. It's an amazing thing. But then the author of Hebrews says, yeah, but that's that's Jesus, he says. Verse verse 9, he says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. All that time last week, the author spent telling us that Jesus is better than the angels And now, here he says that for a little while, Jesus was made lower. A human. Just like us. Really, truly, messily human, just like you, minus the sin. He says the same thing in verse 14, essentially. Look there. He says, since therefore the children, we we humans, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He put on our flesh, and he suffered just like we suffer, and he died just like we die. We celebrate it every Christmas, but do we actually believe it? Our God really, truly, fully, completely became human, just like me and you. I mean, just think of the the love, the humility it would take for our God to do such a thing. I mean, it's just, it's unthinkable. Did anybody see this week the the story that went viral about this guy's business card? Anybody? No? Um, So this this guy, he's from China. Um, I mean, I thought it was a joke at first. We got a picture of it here. He's a billionaire. Um, Apparently very important in in China. Never heard of him. But this is literally his business card, okay? I'll just read a few of it. The thought, most influential person of China. Most prominent philanthropist of China. China moral leader. China earthquake rescue hero, okay? He's like, you know, one of the power rangers or something. He goes on, talks about he's, he's the most charismatic. He's China's foremost everything. And you read this, and it's like, I think this guy thinks 
he's God, right? And yet, I mean, the reason it made such news is because it's just so over-the-top ridiculous. And yet, when I saw that, I couldn't help but think of Jesus. Just in the opposite direction. Because Jesus actually deserves to have the most amazing things said about him, right? Honor and glory, Son of God, the Holy One. All these things that we read about there, for that is who he is. And yet, when our God comes, what would it have said on his business card? Ordinary, carpenter, poor, humble, rejected, despised, abandoned by all of his friends, crucified like a criminal, human. Present, near, approachable. But you know, a great way to keep God out of your life And if you're doing this, you probably don't even realize that you're doing it because it just sounds so spiritual and noble. But a great way to keep God out of your life is to just kind of subtly believe that he couldn't get in anyway or wouldn't want to. He's just too big, too distant, too divine. He wouldn't come near. So ask yourself, is your God too different from you? I mean, you'd pray, but what's the point? God's got bigger fish to fry, doesn't he? You'd try to get to know him if it was possible, but come on, he's just, he's too grand. And besides, who can understand this book, let alone even believe it? Yeah, maybe, maybe you believe in God, but I mean, there's so many choices out there. We can't really put our fingers on it, but nobody could possibly know. And so it sounds so noble and spiritual to say, God is just too big, too great, too wonderful but it's a great way to keep God at arm's length. It's just to believe that he's too big to be known. But let me read these words from Max Lucado. They're long, but they're worth it here. He writes, Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the streets with him. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him or vice versa. One thing's for sure. He was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. Felt weak. He grew weary got colds, burped, had body odor, his feelings got hurt, his feet got tired, and his head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, clean the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There's something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, predictable, But don't do it for heaven's sake. Don't. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. You see, either way, the God we imagine, he either tends to be too much like us or not enough. I mean, be honest, we like a God close enough to approve of us, 
to make us feel warm and fuzzy, but distant enough to know and to mind his own business. But that God can never rescue us. God is nothing like you, and he's everything like you. That is the God we need. Which is why Jesus is exactly what you need. I mean, in my opinion, you couldn't invent a better God than this. And I'm convinced nobody, nobody can make this stuff up. I mean, right? Who in their right mind would think up a, a, a Savior who is both fully 100% human and fully 100% God? And yet, once we see it revealed in Scripture, I'm convinced as well that we wouldn't want it any other way. Kind of reminds me of the precious words my four-year-old daughter, Eden, prayed a few months ago at dinner time. God, she said, I love you just the way you are. He's perfect. He's everything like us and nothing like us, exactly what we need. And I know the moment that we try to figure out how Jesus is 100% human and how he's 100% God, our brains begin to hurt. We can't fully wrap our minds around it. Our God is mysterious and our brains are finite. And yet the very truth that he is both. I mean, in this passage alone, there are three things that, in my opinion, are three of the most beautiful, richest things offered to us in the gospel because of what Jesus Christ has done right here, simply because he is both. Only this kind of God can offer forgiveness. Only him. Only this kind of God can free us from here. Only him and only this kind of God can make us family. Only him. Only he can offer forgiveness. Let's look at this. Verse 17. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, the only way for Jesus to save us, to to forgive us, is by offering the perfect sacrifice as the perfect high priest. Okay, so the the role of the the priests, it's a little foggy for us probably, Uh, we don't live in that world, Uh, but the role of the priest was to be sort of a a bridge between God and man, a, a mediator, okay? But here's the deal, so priests, all the priests before Jesus, they were all merely human, right? It makes sense. Of course they were. But that kind of begs the question, right? If that person is my bridge to God and that person is human, then, well, who's their bridge to God? right? And if Jesus were merely human, we'd have the same question. But at the same time, we'd be in the same boat if he were only divine, right? It begged the same basic question. If, if he is my bridge to God, but he is God, then who's my bridge to him, right? We'd be stuck, and because of our sins, we'd be, we'd be stuck forever. Not only does this perfect high priest offer us the perf- offer the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, or is the perfect bridge, he offers the perfect sacrifice. I mean, that's, that's the idea there of that really churchy word. Um, some of you might be familiar with it, others not. Propitiation, right? It's like, what, what does that even mean, right? Well, it's the idea of, of the sacrifice that Jesus' death was on behalf of our, our, of our sin, that, that we should have died, but Jesus died in our place. But think about this. 
Okay, if, if Jesus had only been God or only been man, then the high priest thing wouldn't work out. He couldn't be the perfect priest. He couldn't be the perfect mediator between us and God. But he also couldn't have been the perfect sacrifice. Because if Jesus was just a man, it would have been no different than if I died. And not only am I unwilling to die for all of your sins, okay, sorry, um, it still begs the question, well, who's going to die for my sins, right? And even if I was sinless, which I assure you is not the case, but even if I was, no mere human would have the power to absorb all of God's wrath, right, that is infinite, towards sin. Finite creatures couldn't do that. It wouldn't be possible. And yet at the same time, if Jesus was merely God, well, think about that. God didn't sin, did he? And neither did Jesus, and yet it's only just for a man to suffer for man's sin. Otherwise, it'd be kind of like punishing a squirrel for the sins of a tree. It just doesn't really make any sense. There's no connection there. And so only the God-man offers forgiveness. Only Jesus. There's no other place to get it. So don't waste it. I mean, even now in this moment, what do you need to confess? Before we, before we move on, I mean, if Hebrews is about drifting, sin is a pretty big reason that we drift, isn't it? All these things enticing us, pulling us to go in these various directions to make other things God that aren't God, right? In, in place of Jesus, what do you need to confess? What do you need to admit and turn from and actually, truly, fully be forgiven? I mean, think about that. There is nothing he can't forgive. He's the perfect priest offering the perfect sacrifice. No matter what you've done, where you've been, the regrets that you have, the shame that you experience, there's nothing he can't forgive. And if you've never done this, I mean, only with Jesus is there salvation. Only with him can there be forgiveness. And even if you've done this a thousand times, right, it's, it's what we continue to go back, right, and say, yes, Jesus, I, I've sinned. Here, here's what that looks like. God, would you forgive me? Confess now to the perfect priest who offers the perfect sacrifice. And it even says here, I love this, that he's able to help those who are being tempted. Whatever your area of temptation and what you're struggling with, Because he was a man, he knows, right? He was human. He's felt it. He's been tempted. He's able to help those who are tempted. Ask him to. He's going to, the author's going to hit on this in a couple weeks. We'll spend some more time talking about it when we get to chapter four. Confess to him. Second, because of of who Jesus is, uh, and as a result of this forgiveness that we have, um, only he can free us from fear especially the fear of death. That's the second thing we see here. I know this kind of sounds like, you know, the wrong thing to say in church, the wrong thing to say as a Christian and certainly as a pastor. Um, But truthfully, I'm afraid of death. I mean, like, aren't you? At least a little bit. I mean, think about that. That death is, that's a scary, unknown reality. No matter how much faith you have, I mean, in my line of work, I've been, I've been around death enough to know that I'd prefer not to. And I'm, I'm with Woody Allen, okay? I love his films, and I love what he says about death. He says, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And we're all that way, aren't we? 
I mean, just think about how we fight against it, how we try to hide even the very fact that we're aging, that we will do anything to avoid it, anything to ignore it, and anything to, to not see it happen in, in our lives or the lives of those we love. What's the explanation for that hatred? I mean, think about that. If you view death from a purely naturalistic point of view, what's the explanation for that feeling? I mean, if death is just part of the circle of life, right, a necessary part of evolution, and we have all been dying for thousands of years, and happy thought, okay, if there's one thing that is certain, one thing, the only thing that is certain for every one of us here in this room, it's that you will die. The only certain thing in life is death. You're welcome. You can thank me for that one later. If that's true, why aren't we used to it yet? Why aren't we just okay with it? It, It's the most normal, expected thing in the universe. Why do we fight it? Why do we hate it? Why does it cut us so deeply when it happens? Why is it so terrible? I think only this story explains that. Because this story here says that death, death was never meant to be a part of this world. That you and I, we were never meant to die. It was not part of the plan. That death entered in as the ultimate imposter, the ultimate consequence for our rebellion against God is death, and we hate it, and we're afraid of it. Of course we are. It doesn't belong. But with Jesus, verse 14, it says that he became a man that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We were slaves to the fear of death, but no more. Well, how does that work? Well, Jesus went first, and it turned out okay. And he's made a way for us to follow. Think about it, though. Only a man could die, right? It's not possible for God to die. Only a man could die. And yet, only a God could overcome the powers of death itself. He had to be both. Yeah, but Nathan, I'm still afraid of death, says almost everyone. Of course you are. It doesn't belong here. It's the enemy. But you're no longer a slave to that fear. Not in Christ. Because in Christ, death will not have the last word. And if you think about it, if we don't have to fear death, then what do we have to fear? And think about hearing this as a first century Christian, just as the persecution is beginning to heat up. No fear. I mean, the author knows that our fears cause us to drift. I mean, when you're afraid, deeply afraid, or or feeling a lack of of security in your life, I mean, our tendency is to run or to hide or or do anything or to to reject this, this God that offers protection, care. When it says right here that everything is subject under him, even death, So what are you afraid of? 
What do you need to entrust to him, even right now in this moment? I mean, only he can handle your fears. Nobody else can. And finally, only he can make us family. I mean, if these other two things have been you know, shocking almost, and, and, and what we receive from this, this God, this, this Jesus. This one is just flat out ridiculous. It's just, it's almost too much to bear. Did you catch it here? Let me, let me read it in the NIV this time. It says the same thing. I just think the argument comes out a little bit clearer, but verse, verse 11, it says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Let's go through that a little bit here. Because of who Jesus is, okay, look at, look at what he's done. Both the one who makes people holy, that's God, Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, that's Christians, are of the same family. And so much so that Jesus, if you trust him, the one who is nothing like you and everything like you, exactly what you need, this Jesus, he is not ashamed to call you his brother. Or his sister. Jesus isn't ashamed of you. And we all have family members that we're ashamed of, don't we? I mean, good grief, that uncle or cousin or weird sibling or whatever, people that you just you wouldn't you wouldn't introduce to your friends to save your life, right? Well, in this family, God's family, I, I feel like that. The outcast, the rebel. I mean, I don't belong in this family. Are you kidding me? If ever there was a black sheep of the family. I am ashamed for Jesus to call me brother. But he's not. That's why he came, isn't it? I mean, God has only one true son, Jesus, but he wants a really big family. And his adoption policy is wide open. Come to him with faith, that's it. Simple belief. And you will be given all the same rights and privileges as Jesus himself so that I can say, Jesus is my brother. He is. All kinds of things cause us to drift. Our sins, our fears, so do our insecurities. Our longing for approval from others, that desire to know that you've made something of your life, whether it's through, through work or family, to know that, you, that you're good enough, right? That it's meant something, that you're significant. And we'll do just about anything we want me to feel accepted, loved, important. And this brother, he knows everything about you. Everything, everything. And still he loves you. I mean, if that's true, where are you insecure? Where where do you still feel this battle raging in your soul to feel important and accepted and loved? I mean, we all feel that, right? I think it's one of the deepest longings that we as humans feel. We want, we want to know that our lives matter and that they matter to somebody. And here's Jesus, not ashamed to call us brother. When are you going to let him tell you who you are? All because of Jesus, the God you really want, the God you really need, the God who is nothing like you, and yet everything like you. 
why not give them a chance? Why not give them your life?